When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. Now, of course, normally I intro the show with some song lyrics from the song that we're here to talk about. But for this episode, it's a very special episode. We're not talking about a song. We are talking about an artifact, a a, a chunk, uh, a physical object from the history of Bob Dylan. And joining me to talk about this very, very special, actually, series of objects is mega Dylan fan and Dylan expert and scholar, Ann-Margaret Daniel. Hi, Ann. Hi, how are you today, Rob? I am doing great. I am so absolutely thrilled to have you on the show because uh, you are a preeminent expert on this stuff, and I love learning new things about Bob Dylan. I always, I always think... I used to think that there wasn't anything left, but that's completely not true, <laughs> as we as we now know. So, so not true. <laughs> so not so not true, and will always be true. Basically, no matter how long into the history, there will be new things we'll be discovering. And before we get to the subject in question, which are the Bob Dylan "Blood on the Tracks" notebooks that feature the lyrics of all of the songs that he wrote for that remarkable album, I need to ask you: like, How did you become? a fan in the first place? And then how did you transition into becoming like an expert and a writer on Bob Dylan? Well, I think anyone writing on Bob Dylan was a fan first to begin with and, uh, and remains. So, um, I first started listening to Dylan when I was in high school. My, um, I had a beloved uh, older cousin, uh, who gave me his, scratched up battered battered to pieces copy of blood on the tracks <laughs> and uh, i think he finally broke down and replaced it it had been his own college copy and i went on from there pretty quickly to infidels and uh then i i bought myself a copy of blonde on blonde and highway 61 at a fantastic old music store called Jarrett and morgan in uh in the village shopping center in Richmond, Virginia. And that was, that was the beginning. Um, I always really enjoyed listening to him. The first Dylan concert I went to was in the summer of 1988. Um, I don't think anyone who even remotely enjoyed listening to him knew what we were getting into in the summer of 88. (laughs) We would would have the bounty of what has come to be called uh, for better or worse, the never ending tour. Mm -hmm. But that that's sort of that's my own personal beginnings. What was when you saw him in 88? Because that, as you said, that was the beginning of the never ending tour. Like what what was your I mean, some for some people, it can be a real rude adjustment because, of course, he's not he's in concert. He's very different from what you're hearing on the record. Did you did you immediately take to it or were you kind of like, hmm, OK, what's this about? Well, I, I rode my bicycle up to the um, to the uh Music venue. It's a man music center. It's uh, basically on the grounds of the Philadelphia Zoo, and uh, I was with a group of girlfriends. There were four of us who just decided to road trip up together. So we biked or walked or took the subway and met each other there. Um, took the train or something and met each other there. And uh, I remember 
the the venue was uh <laughs> it was small and we were sitting in plain old metal folding chairs Ooh. that it was very easy to push out a line and you know dance in and that kind of thing and uh bob had on a great deal of eyeliner and <laughs> a sleeveless vest um ge smith was playing guitar with him he was doing a fantastic job uh a lot of the show was acoustic which made me very happy and i remember being entirely baffled by trail of the buffalo yeah yeah, i have i have a bootleg of that somewhere (laughs) but near near the end of the show he did an absolutely blazing maggie's farm and i thought oh this is just fantastic hearing him live and so i went to several more shows that summer on on the same tour and um and really enjoyed the experience of of uh, following him around that summer when I was pretty much a kid uh, in concert. It was uh, it was a really good time, and that surprised me. I had not thought that Bob was uh, was someone you would follow around. Mm-hmm. And this was a point when the set lists were shifting every night. Um, now I've come to really like the way in which they don't often shift because the performance you get is so completely different often from night to night and you don't know how the band is going to mix. And so it's, you know, it's just as rich for me now as it was then when you had all these curveballs coming at you and you really didn't know how to expect or, or what to expect. Now you take a look at a set list that hasn't changed for, you know, 10 or 20 shows and you think, you know what to expect, but you don't really until you go. <laughs> how many times have you seen him total so far? Um, I it's uh, uh, a few hundred. <laughs> wow! <laughs> hey, that's that's over a lot of years. That's over a lot of years. <laughs> that, well, that's still a lot of time to do to go to a concert of the same artist. I when I tell people I've seen him twenty three, they're like, "What?" I mean, I know in in the realm of Dylan fans, twenty three is nothing, but hundreds is that's uh, pretty remarkable. <laughs> Well, I have to say, the thing about living on the Upper Northeast uh, Circuit is. Um, you know, he's always very generous with the New York right. City area. A few years ago at a concert, uh, right before he did Simple Twist of Fate, he said, doesn't anyone have to ask me what I feel about this city? And mm-hmm. uh, and it's the truth. He, he loves playing in the New York area. And I've been lucky enough to be based there for a long time. So among New York and Philly and, you know, kind of the um, Hudson Valley up through Massachusetts, uh, you get four or five shows at a time yeah that's true yeah i think i saw him three times in philly when he he came by philly one time and i just went to every show we're like all right while we're here let's just go to everyone well um, these residencies are something he really seems to be enjoying these days um i've i've been particularly uh amazed by the residencies at the beacon theater in new Mm -hmm. york I mean, the Beacon is such a fantastic venue, and it's uh, it really is kind of a it's it's like a big social event at the holiday season, where you go and you see old friends, you run into people you've only communicated with by email, or mm-hmm. you've read essays by them, and you and you get to meet them. You see every musician in New York comes to one show or another. So, you know, you, you see a lot of friends from from all the different levels and, and layers of the music scene. It's really fun. So, you, well, Eric, you mentioned uh, people that write essays. That's the perfect uh, segue. How did you move into writing about them? I mean, that's a that's a big leap. Well, I I started writing about him, gosh, it's been 
20 plus years ago now, I, uh, I initially wanted to write about some concerts I'd been to. I was I really liked the idea of doing of doing live concert reviews. Um, also, when particularly Modern Times and Love and Theft, I mean th- those were both albums that I thought were very worthy of album reviews. I was just getting into music writing at the time. Um, I'm an English professor by trade, and I teach and write a lot about poetry. Honestly, I think it is the fault of W.B. Yeats <laughs> that I started um, that I started uh, writing about Dylan, and it is the fault of Seamus Heaney that I kept on writing about Dylan. Um, Two Irish Nobel laureates, <laughs> uh, Dylan is now in their company, of course, but. Um, I had been a Yeats specialist from the time I was in the early days of grad school. I, I got my PhD in English down at Princeton back in 1999. And I spent a number of years in the early 2000s as the associate director of the Yeats Summer School in Sligo, Ireland. And uh, Heaney had been my modern poetry professor when I was an undergrad at Harvard. And I had stayed in touch with him. We, you know, I, I would... I wouldn't have the temerity to say we were friends, but we certainly had a friendly relationship. Um, I was, I was acquainted, you know, with his wife and, and we hung out and went to dinner and that sort of thing when he came to Sligo and did readings at the eighth school. And one night, the three of us um, together with the director of the eighth summer school at the time went out to just a little restaurant in Sligo for dinner. And Heaney and I talked probably 45 minutes to an hour about Dylan and about Dylan's lyrics. Um, and Heaney, Heaney was a huge fan of Dylan's, as well as a great admirer of what Heaney called his lyrical poetry. He um, he was very careful not to detach it from the music, because for Seamus, um, he, he said, you know, they're written as song lyrics. They belong with the melody that Dylan put them to. Um, I don't think they should be analyzed as poetry. And that, that was an important lesson for me. It was, it was really important to respect that and not, you know, just teach Dylan's lyrics as contemporary poetry. I always had the music along with them, um, the melody and sometimes the changing melody, but that, that particular interest really came out of a conversation with Heaney. Um, well, I said, that's uh, that's remarkable. So, okay. We're here to talk about these notebooks. And for anyone listening to this who's not familiar with these notebooks, uh, initially there was supposedly just the one, which was called the, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Dylan Parlance, the, the Little Red Notebook, which was the book that Bob brought with him uh, to the recording studio uh, in, uh, I guess, September of 74, I believe, uh, and was using that as the basis of the songs that he was recording for. Blood on the Tracks, and supposedly there were not only the lyrics for the songs that appeared on the album, but there were lyrics to other songs that had never made it onto Blood on the Tracks. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, uh, and now we have you've been discovered over time that, uh, and you wrote about that. There's not just one notebook. There's in fact several, and you were among one of the first people ever to get a look at these things. How did that come about? Well, I I had um, I had reviewed and worked with the Little Red Notebook in the Morgan Library um, for about three years. I mean, I I I was uh, I was fortunate enough to have been granted. Uh, 
permission to look at that notebook. And, and you do have to apply for permission both to the library, which is the custodial library, and of course to the copyright holder as well, which would be, um, you know, via Sony Music Entertainment, uh, Dylan himself. And, uh, and I was, I was really, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was delighted to work on the Morgan notebook. This was before any uh, digital copies had been made of it. Um, now, of course, that's been reproduced as part of the box set for Blood on the Tracks. Um, more Blood, more Tracks, I should say. And uh, it it really, you really do have to bend over those with a massive magnifying glass. <laughs> His handwriting is teeny, teeny, tiny. And eventually you get used to it, but it never gets any larger. The notebooks are those little um, spiral notebooks with the, the wire up the side. Um, they sold for 19 cents, and they were made by the Mead Corporation out in Ohio. They're the kind that you could shove into a hip pocket, and from the look of all the ones that survived, Dylan did that really often and also sat on them. Um, <laughs> they're, uh, they're quite fragile, and I'm delighted that they have now been digitized. The digital images are superb. There's no reason other than archival fetishism for anyone to ever touch the little notebooks again. And there are indeed three of them that we know about to date. Um, there's the one in the Morgan, which a lot of ink has been spilled on, the little red notebook, as you said. In Tulsa, however, there are two more. Um, there is a very battered one that's missing its cover. The cover used to be red, and you can just see a little strip of, you know, how when you pull something out of a spiral notebook, you get a little fringe that's yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. Spiral, yeah. Um, you can see that it used to be kind of a kind of a tomatoey uh, red, and that is um, that does contain song drafts. It contains words and phrases, thoughts, uh, shopping lists, kind of to do lists, reminders of things that you need to do during the course of the day, and uh, it's much more of a, a kind of grab bag. Um, the second notebook that is in Tulsa has a kind of a Robin's Egg, between Robin's Egg and Royal Blue cover. And it is it is a treasure chest. Um, it, I think of the three notebooks as being sort of three stages. The very battered one is kind of a... I, I, they're all undated. There are some random clues that permit you to assign a date uh, here and there. But there's no telling when Dylan, let's say, let's say he filled half of one of the notebooks and then went back and used it again later. There's no way to actually pinpoint the progress from page to page. But my gut feeling is that the battered notebook comes first, then the blue notebook, which is the actual working notebook in which he's drafting and revising and redrafting these songs. And then comes the little red notebook at the Morgan. You mentioned that that's the one he. Um, I think you said he brought it into the studio with him. Is that correct? That's from what I from what I have read. That was the one supposedly that he had yeah, in the studio that, with him. That one looks to me almost like a fair copy, um, a, a final version of the songs that were being drafted in the Blue Notebook. So that's that's how it seems to me. I mean, he's 
he's let's face it he's still drafting some of these songs <laughs> that's right and redrafting um tangled up in blue is the big one that is is in a state of constant uh flux <laughs> um but also simple twist of fate uh idiot wind to a degree um and then there are drafts of songs that he just set aside and decided not to include on the album that exist in both the Blue Notebook and the beaten up one, um, Tulsa Notebooks 5 and 6. One of the things I, I thought was uh, very interesting about when I read what you wrote about it was the, about how uh, he seems to, I mean, obviously he was only uh, thinking he's the only person that would ever look at this thing. Um, so he felt no need to keep it organized. And you said it seemed like he was working on all the songs simultaneously. And going back and forth, there was not like, okay, working on Tangled Up in Blue, that's done. Now let's move on to, uh, you know, you're a big girl now. There was, that's not what happened. No, that's not what happened. If you can, if you can, <laughs> if you can believe having all those in your head at once, um, it's, you know, what's it like? From what I've read, it's kind of like William Blake drafting the songs of innocence and of experience, which, which sort of came to him all in a flood. Um, that's the closest thing I can think of to it. It's the, the creativity is astounding and also the professionalism, the, the constant revising. These songs don't just sort of spring out of Dylan's head. He labors over them. He really is a perfectionist and he obviously cares a heck of a lot about what he's saying and how he's saying it. There was a quote. I, I refer to this uh, interview constantly on the show because I just found like you, you may use the phrase treasure trove, but it's that interview on in the on the tracks magazine with Jim Dickinson talking about working with Dylan on time out of mind. And he said that he would be off in a corner and he would notice Bob had, you know, sheaves of paper. All, oh. With with lyrics in ink and then uh, you know uh, notations on the side in pencil and he said right up to the point where right up to the point where he's ready to sing he's revising and he just said for those people out there that think this is random art or chance art or it all just pops into his head and out it comes just don't just don't get it and amen to that and I I actually I reviewed I was allowed to review the copyright proof pages for the Blood on the Track songs as part of my looking at the notebooks. And literally, there would be, on, on the pages that were allegedly about to be sent away for copyright, there would still be these, these blanks left. And Ask Bob, you know, this isn't final, kind of written in the margins. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing to me how he kept up that revising, or at least it's, it's not amazing to me. I've heard him still revising in concert, of course, we right. all, but, um, but to see how, even when these works are going to copyright, he'll take a pen, he'll make a change, he'll shift something, he'll, he'll shift a word around, um, tangled up in blue famously, uh, goes from third person to first person or back and forth. And you can see how he really wanted to make it third person, first person, where he's not thinking about it, you know. She was married when we first met or when they first met. Is it going to be a he or is it going to be an I? And uh, he's really careful about that in the drafts. Were these notebooks brought with him? I get it. Presumably they were when he went to Minnesota, when he back, when he, when he went home and recut so much of the material? 
I have no idea. I I don't I don't know what their trajectory was. I know that the red one has been out of his hands for a very long time, and of course it was it was part of uh, the the gift slash uh, purchase of George Hackshire's to the Morgan. The other two notebooks went straight from Dylan's own ownership to the archive in Tulsa. I'm kind of amazed, really, when I heard that the, the, these notebooks would be reproduced in the box set, that he would that he would allow that. I mean, I, you know, obviously, now that there have been 14 volumes of bootleg series, obviously <laughs> the man is comfortable with revealing the, the, the building blocks of his art uh, now. I mean, I guess with the, 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 the distance, you know, the time... Um, Safety of distance, you know, like, oh, well, who cares if they hear, you know, nine versions of Stuck Inside of Mobile, it was 50 years ago or something. But I am, I said, for someone who seems so private, I'm I'm really pretty shocked that he would allow this level of scrutiny uh, on his working processes for everyone to see. I just, I don't know. It's, um, the the notebook that re- that was reproduced, the the one that is is in the hands of the Morgan, is the one that I think the most people have known about and speculated about, and of course that the most scholars have been granted access to the longest. And it's I think it's very generous that he uh, or whoever authorized this um, has has made it available to people. And uh, I'm sure you saw there was a. a slip in the printing where four yeah. pages were missed. And so those were put up, um, made available at bobdylan.com. Um, as I said, those are the most finished versions of the songs. And a lot of the, if you will, supporting text, the musings about other things. There are a couple of places in the Blue Notebook where he starts drafting what looks like a short story. Wow. Um, he tells he tells a little uh, a little moment about a train trip that he takes up the Hudson Valley to Pixie, um, you know, bright moments like that, and then some darker moments too, uh, that that are not song lyrics per se. And I'm not sure. Uh, I have not personally asked for any of those to be reproduced in, in anything that I've written, but uh, but I hope they are they are made available um, to scholars at least who are are very interested in Dylan's creative process, and that they can there be thereby be made accessible to other people who want to know more about the way he writes songs. Of the, uh, I, I'm so desperate to ask you about the the, the missing songs, but I, I don't want to jump to those either because I want to focus on the ones that are that are on the record. Uh, but in your in your opinion, from what you've seen, like, are there some songs that he seemed to? Uh, I don't I don't want to say they were easier because I don't even know if that's even the right term to use. But there were some that seemed to just come a little formed a little quicker than some others. Are there some that are clearly that he really labored on? Oh yes, um, the the ones that he really labored on are uh, "Tangled Up in Blue." Keeps coming back to that. Um, "Idiot Wind," uh, "Simple Twist of Fate." Those three have a lot of ink spilled on them. Uh, "Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts" is, of course, a very long song, <laughs> 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 but it 
it does not have quite so many changes and revisions. He's got the theme of that. He has the story that he wants to tell. And most of the drafts of that are tinkering with some very specific twists and turns. Um, The songs that really do change their shape and shape shift are are a simple twist of fate, tangled up in blue, and and idiot when those are kind of the big three as as far as I am concerned. From what you saw, is there anything? I mean, we all have our we all have our our sort of our hobby horse as a Dylan fan to say this is the one thing I wish he included. Everybody has that. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything in the in these notebooks that align a, a segment uh, where you go ah oh, oh, that's a lot oh that was a okay <laughs> I wish that had made it in. Well, there there are just some fantastic couplets. There are some beautiful, beautiful couplets, and you know, just a stray line. You you don't see what it relates to, but you just see the line. I'm staking all I have on you, and you think, well, was that meant to go in tangled up in blue because it rhymes with blue? <laughs> right. <laughs> Seriously, he has he has a whole line of you know possible rhymes for blue, and 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 he's very into the sound of that particular song. Um, there are uh, up to me is such a great song, mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course we've we've been able to hear that. You know there are things like Bell Tower Blues. Uh, there are what uh, <laughs> another writer I another Minnesotan I spend a lot of time writing about is F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald has a thing he does where he will do three quarters of a magical short story, or at least it's magical to me. And then he'll just draw a line through it. And at the top, he'll write false start. <laughs> and he'll set it aside. And Dylan doesn't actually put false start, nor does he draw a line through it. But you can see when you look at the notebooks where he gets to a point that he's not going to come back to because definitionally he doesn't come back to it. And he has decided that he's not going to go any further with that particular uh, what idea, lyric, song? There's one fascinating piece. It just starts out long-legged fox in a blue silk dress. And you're like, yes, tell me more. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. Hmm. Now there are there are, there are two songs not in the book, right? Because they had, they were written later. Isn't that right? Buckets of rain. Is that right? Um, Buckets of Rain is, as best I recall, not in the notebook. Okay, right, because I think that one came along later. Uh, I, I was looking at one of the uh, articles you wrote on those, the one I'm looking on your on your website, and there's a, a graphic shown of one of the pages, and it's an early version of Simple Twist of Fate, where here it's called Snowbound. And yeah, but- I'm amazed at how it's organized in terms of the... the the bursts of words because it's that's that's a story song and yet these fragments look like something out of tarantula uh, i mean i'm almost like how do you even follow this now of course he has it all in his head and he wasn't intending anybody to be seeing this stuff 45 years later but uh, i'm 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 just sort of amazed at how sort of scattershot it seems and i'm trying to think of like what it must have been like to be in that studio and try and hone all this into Something. I mean, you know, you talk about that. We put it in another book, and then those are the closer, closer to the final versions of what he would actually record on. But I'm just, I don't know. I'm amazed that this is the process. That this is, it's so bits and pieces, and then it slowly sort of congeals together. Well, if you, I, I tell you, I, 
I, I mean, I've, I've never been in the studio with them, and I've read plenty of accounts from people who have been, and they all say there's there's a fair amount of hanging out, <laughs> waiting, waiting time, um, while he fine-tunes words. Remember that clip in, uh, in Don't Look Back where he's sitting at a piano, and, you know, the room is full of sort of chaos behind him. All the rest of the folks are, you know, having beers and doing whatever they do. And he's sitting there and he's just, he's got those long fingers stretched out on the piano keys. And he's just kind of going, whoa, 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 whoa. He's, he's, he has a tune in his head, but the words aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about the whole bootleg series from the very beginning is that you can hear those songs, I mean, think about the drafts of like a Rolling Stone. Right. Where where he has the melody that he wants, but he doesn't have two things that go along with the melody. He doesn't have all the words set. And Desolation Row is another great example. Um, you know, spoon feeding Casanova with the boiled guts. Boiled of guts birds. of birds, yeah. We're working on that one. Um and and he also doesn't have the exact speed. He doesn't have the tempo. Um, the first couple of takes of like a Rolling Stone, it's almost bum, bum, bum. It's like a waltz. Mm-hmm. It's a one, two, three. How does it feel? And it's very slow. It's got one of those lovely rocking chair kind of folky beats. And then slowly it gets rocked up, but then it gets going too fast. And he has to slow it back down. And and it's it's finding the exact words and the tempo that follow on to the melody. It seems to me that he has the melody first when he's composing. Um, I mean, just from what documentary evidence I have in terms of film and in terms of, of the box sets themselves. And as I was reading that section of Snowbound, I was trying to, you know, I'm I'm hearing the melody for a simple twist of fate in my head. Da da da. I mean. You see, you see the verse that you're that you're thinking of. It says "snowbound" all in capital letters, and then he has the rhyme "concentrate, hesitate" right below it. Right, those rhyme with what? Fate, right? Right. So you get a sense that he already has at least a refrain in his head. Uh, the words "simple twist of fate" do not appear there. It just says "snowbound," and then in the opposite margin, it says "door opened up by a simple twist" with a dash. And sometimes he uses that dash to fill in words that he already knows and doesn't want to repeat. Like when he has a refrain, "simple twist dash" is going to mean "simple twist of fate" because he's already written it out elsewhere. So he's already got the rhyme in his head, and what he wants to do is make the story fit into the rhyme he's got. He woke up, she was gone, he got out of bed, put his clothes back on, and then in the margin slipped downstairs where the something to see the illegible dawn. So the idea of the guy, the he, going downstairs, you know, sort of facing the dawn, to meet the dawn, he says, in another place. He'll draw little parentheses underneath something and then add a revision of a line. Um, and 
And that's then you get to the desk clerk at the very end, the desk clerk, you know, by the floor, by the door. He's trying to figure out exactly where he's going to take that. Um, the the being dressed in white kind of goes back to the snowbound at the beginning, but it also rhymes with dogs that bite. <laughs> <laughs> And sirens in the night. So the the rhyme is shaping the lyrics, and he's got those end lyrics. He is, I mean, like Byron, like Alexander Pope, like Shakespeare. He is a king of the rhyming couplet. Um, he's really got an ear for the rhyme, and it's how the rest of the line is going to fill in with alliterations, with the right kind of words uh, that he spends the most time, I think, working on. It's a. Uh, is there any indication from the notebooks about how uh, the album was forming in his mind in terms of where these songs were going to go? Uh, was he? I mean, uh, I, I think I read that there was n- almost never any variation in the sequencing. That this this album is just sort of well, it became obvious as they were working on it. Well, Tangin' Up a Blue is going to open it, and then we're going to put this here. Is there any indication of that? Do you feel like is there any notations where he is? shaping the album or it really is just working on the songs and obviously the the it becoming an, an an album was dealt with later yeah honestly i don't recall that i because they're all happening at once right. in the draft um i don't i don't remember seeing a clear order i don't remember seeing one immediately give way to the other okay now, in terms of the songs that were supposedly uh, written but not uh, recorded, uh, this was the big deal for me because when I'd heard about the box set, I was hoping that uh, maybe some of these songs had been recorded. According, again, according to Clinton Halen, he said that there was a early recording session that was sort of a run-through of the songs. And while there was no uh, record of that recording session, he figured if, if there had ever been a chance that these other songs had been recorded, this would have been the session where they had been recorded. Uh, and now we know uh, that, I guess that didn't happen, that these songs were not recorded. Uh, these songs exist in the notebooks. And as far as I understand, there's there's seven of them. It's There Ain't Gonna Be Any Next Time, Bell Tower Blues, which you mentioned, Where Do You Turn? It's Breaking Me Up, Don't Want No Married Woman, Ain't It Funny, and Little Bit of Rain, which I would imagine sounds a lot like what buckets of rain now are is that accurate are they all in there um there are there are starts and indeed sometimes full drafts with i think every one of the phrases you've just said to me i can't remember if those are assigned as titles bell tower blues is definitely a title that has been reproduced um there's a a full draft of that in the morgan notebook so that will be in the box set are any of those the kind of thing where you say, oh, sh- I really wish he had done something with that? Or do you feel as though that what he eventually moved on to was basically the, the, the right material to focus on? You know, it's really hard to judge because I haven't heard those as songs. Right, right. I have only read those words in a kind of, the, the in the shape of a formal poem. You know, you see the lines going down the page, but you have no melody in your head to fit them to. And I, you know, would it be interesting to kind of 
have a melody take place? Would it be interesting to know what he had in mind that maybe turned into another song? Um, like you say, Buckets of Rain? Of course it would. I don't know if we'll ever have access to that or if there's any way to do it. Um, I do know that his great early model, Woody Guthrie, of course, had shades of song that later were turned over to others for hmm. melodic composition. And that might be a really interesting prospect. Are there repeated yeah. motifs throughout these songs? I mean, if you, you look at something later like uh, Time Out of Mind, there were entire chunks of lines that are taken from one song and planted into another. Uh, is the, And that's something I think maybe he's always been doing that, but Time Out of Mind is the example I think of the most where it's like, well, there's, wow, there's this line out of Dream Dreaming of You and it's he used it for a song later on that it was on the album, but is, are the songs on blood on tracks kind of unique to one another? They don't really seem to, do they seem to borrow any, any lines that, and, and were the lines from these lost quote unquote lost songs get used up in any way? Well, yeah, there, there are, there's a song that looks like it might be meet me in the morning, honey. Okay. <laughs> morning, honey, we could have a ball, but then there's something separate hanging off it um about his grandfather's farm or one's grandfather's farm it's it's not you know dylan's grandfather it's just my grandfather had a farm you know and it's it's kind of um you have no idea of knowing how that would have fit together or not fit together he's got a line uh in the middle of drafting you're going to make me lonesome when you go where he just says crooked lines that don't connect Hmm. And and you're not sure if that was at one point going to rhyme with, you know, right on target. So direct, <laughs> you don't because it, the shape of it is not yet there. Um, and I think it's I mean, I've, I've seen some instances like that where I think I know which lines the songs would go to. But because he chose not to put them there, that is not a part of the finished song. It's usually easy to tell which is a draft of which, even in a place where he's got two songs, let's say the draft of two songs on the same page, because he is very good about drawing an emphatic line across, like even though they're together in his mind and he's thinking about them at the same time, he draws a line to separate the two songs and to keep them apart while he's working on them almost simultaneously. Mm. It, it really is. I mean, it really is kind of a painterly project. If you have your palette and you're doing something that's white and whitish blue, you know, you're using the same paintbrush, you're dipping in the same area. You just, you've got a little more blue on it at this point. So you go to that part of the painting. And then when it, when it kind of wears down to the white, you shift back over and do the cloud. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. yep, yep. In, that, in that sense, um, you know, the, the earlier interviews, which, uh, talk about this album and, you know, some songs on it, like Tangled Up in Blue as being sort of painterly uh, projects. It, it's interesting to think of it that way um, as you look at the draft. Right. And we know that he was working with uh, Norman Rabin, the painter who he and he gave a lot of credit to and saying that Norman Rabin, I think he said something like taught him to do consciously what he used to be able to do unconsciously. Uh, and then he said that, the, you know, the result of those classes with Norman Raymond were blood on the tracks. So you're like, wow, you know, like, okay, that seemed to work out really well. Uh, well, that, I, I think, I mean, God bless 
uh, God, God bless Raven, but I think that's giving him a little too much credit. <laughs> uh, his, his painting classes did not create blood on the tracks. Bob Dylan's own imagination did. So, <laughs> that's you know, true. That's true. One of it's your it's your palimpsested influences, isn't it? It's the poetry you've been reading lately. It's the art you've been studying. It's how you see the world with your own two eyes and with your consciousness as well. One of the things that I came away from after hearing the More Blood, More Tracks box set is that because I had always read that essentially Blood on the Tracks did not have a producer, really, uh, in, in, in a formal sense, the way Tom Wilson was a producer and Bob Johnson was a producer. Ellen Bernstein was there helping out and Phil Ramone, who was an old hand at Columbia Records, was there. But there wasn't, according to the quotes that I saw, the album sort of, um, I hate to use this phrase, but like produced itself. It just became very obvious this was the version we're going to use this is that but i listened to and 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 i took away from that well then okay there were probably weren't a lot of multiple versions of things but hearing more blood more tracks that's just simply not true no. uh, i one of my i mean i love that whole album of course but one of my favorites if i have to pick them uh is you're gonna make me lonesome when you go i love that song for so many reasons i love that it's so jaunty and so relatively lighthearted compared to whatever else is there on the record. And I love how it stands out. It's this little two and a half minute tune in the middle of all this stuff. And then there's this version of it on More Blood, More Tracks, which is completely and utterly different from the version. And I and I was like, boy, I would not envy him having to sit there and decide which one of these to use. Because it seems like it's, a, it's win-win, but it's also lose-lose. Because I, I you know, and that is just stunning to me that for a record that supposedly sort of came just out naturally, well, no, they hit a lot to perm from, and in a lot of ways, I mean, good lord, the man has received credits and 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 awards. He must have a room full of this stuff, but I still don't feel like he gets enough credit for being able to sort of focus this mountain of material into something as cohesive as like that record. Yeah, well, I tip of the iceberg really is a good way of thinking about it. And uh, you say there was really no producer in the room. There was always Jack Frost. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, was, Jack Frost is always there. He was, he was there, and um, and I think you're absolutely right. Just like, you know, people still just want to see Dylan holding the guitar. Um, he doesn't get nearly enough credit for his almost his freestyle his almost jazz piano playing he does not get credit for his keyboards work um he i think has never received proper credit for his production work mm -hmm. uh, he's he's got a heck of an ear and he knows how he wants both a song to sound once it's committed to vinyl and how he wants the overall record to sound, the sequence of the songs, very important to him. It's it's like stanzas in, in a long epic poem. Um, they need to come in order. And overall, I think it's important that they tell a story. Um, it was really fascinating to me to see the way his music was used in and also had inspired Girl from the North Country because um, sections of that musical were taken from you know kind of gospel albums or the gospel time so-called he's been in his gospel period since his early days mm -hmm. <laughs> make no mistake but um but the way that that musical shaped itself around 
kind of sections of different albums really did uh, make Dylan's own production skills stand out to me. I was like, oh, this is what they were listening to. And this is what they wanted to emphasize in this particular part. Um, the use of Duquesne Whistle, for instance, in Girl from the North Country blew me away. And that was the song that Dylan chose to start uh, Tempest with. Right. That song that he chose to showcase with, with a really uh, eye-opening and uh, disconcerting video. <laughs> a lot um, of those videos are very disconcerting. They are, they are, but uh, but that's you know that's that's all all his decision. That's how he wants it to sound. That's how he wants it to look. And um, and I think I really think he should get more credit for things like that. Yeah. Having access to this material now, has it altered your view of the album? Does it? Does it? I mean, it's there are times where you know you you know you live with a certain uh, piece of pop art or, or whatever, and you don't know the behind the scenes, and then you learn stuff, and you maybe then you can't turn it off in your brain. You're like, oh, well, now I know that you know they were angry at each other this day, and I can see it. And I never knew that until I was told the story. Does the record? Did the record change in your mind having seen all of this back material? It certainly did. It um, it's the kind of thing you can hardly believe that somebody wrote all on his own. Mm. Um, naturally, when the when the instruments are added, you have good uh, musicians doing what you created, and they they make the shape of the album in a certain way. And and Dylan has worked with some of the best musicians ever to breathe on, on his various albums and, and continues to do so. But looking, just turning those pages over saying, you know, this is literally where it all came from. This is him. This is the way these songs came to be in the first place. And the, the old respect ometer, the old respectometer just goes, so much higher than you even thought it could possibly go before. Um, it, it's, I really, I'm, I, as you see, I'm kind of struggling for a word to, to apply to it. Just honestly, your sense of respect just mm-hmm. goes way up. Do you think that, and, and this probably is impossible to answer because I'm asking you to guess what he's thinking and nobody knows what he's thinking. Most of the time, he probably doesn't necessarily know what he's thinking. But I am, he, he's somebody who, uh, by, by the fact that he held on to these notebooks uh, suggests that he knew they had some – maybe they had just sentimental value. I don't know. But I, I feel like that as he has gotten older – I mean we know now he's like 78, 79 years old and he has received every conceivable award out there. Uh, I mean once you get a Nobel Prize, what is there to really get excited about at that point? Oh, I think there's plenty to get excited about. He's looking forward to concerts all over Spain. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, uh, I guess in terms of awards, but yeah, you're right. He's always he's always looking for another joint. Uh, do you think that he's getting more comfortable with this excavation of his? It, 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 this doesn't seem like something that the Bob Dylan of 1985 would have been comfortable with, but now he seems to be kind of okay with it and i wonder what that's about is it just because he has become such an elder statesman it's because there aren't that many of people of his generation left and he's thinking that it it's 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 worthy of examination i don't know i just again i'm going back to something we talked about earlier that i'm just sort of shocked that he would even allow this at all 
Well, I, I cannot begin to guess what he's thinking, <laughs> as, as you rightly say, or what's going on in his mind or, or how he feels about X or Y. But I do know that from, um, from the public statements he has made, and I think of the few interviews he's given, a uh, fantastic one to Gunderson, um, his interviews with Gilmore, and uh, his music hair speech, um, also, his comments when he first received the Nobel and then the full lecture. Um, I think, I mean, it's safe to say that he obviously feels a sense of responsibility, that that he feels a responsibility to, um, I guess, to preserve things like these, uh, that, that you can't just, if you have maybe a fourth notebook... <laughs> lying around in an attic in uh, Minnesota or Malibu or, <laughs> or on the tour bus, um, you're not just going to pitch it away. Right. Well, in fact, see it safely into the hands of the archive in Tulsa. You will make sure everything is properly in Mylar. Um, I, I can, I can just, I can tell you how beautifully the archive is maintained. Um, everything there is top of the line. The climate controls, the materials used for the boxes, everything acid-free. Um, this is going to be a fantastic archive to work in for, you know, decades, centuries. <laughs> it's, right. it's really a, um, a very special, special place. And when you have that kind of place... Um, yeah, I think a sense of responsibility is a good way of putting it. Um, it's just a responsible thing to want to preserve what you may or may not think in your heart of hearts is wildly important, but which has been given importance by the culture in which you live. Right, right. And I personally think we're damn lucky to be alive at the same time. Um, but you know, regardless of whether Dylan himself thinks that or, or what he thinks, and I don't know what he thinks, he obviously, and, and the people who work with him, uh, obviously have a sense of responsibility toward these materials in that they made this deal with Tulsa, that they have um, got such a fantastic place to have these these materials preserved. And these are not just notebooks. These are scraps of paper, literally notes and lyrics written on brown paper bags, <laughs> on, on scraps of a bag, on the um, you know those little those little notepads that that they hand you out at uh, you know at hotels. Obviously. Sure, sure, sure. At, you know, pharmaceutical companies are big on them. They give you those little stacks that are in doctor's offices. Right, yeah, yeah. Room. He has written on everything. And this <laughs> material has been preserved. There is film footage that is astounding. Um, there, I, I've just begun to look into that. Um, there are visual representations. There's, uh, you know, there, there are drawings. I haven't seen any... Uh, major pieces of art like if if there are oil paintings in the archive i don't know about those but there there are some you know there are sketches in the margins of things that have obviously been preserved um sketches in the margins of tour diaries and that kind of stuff i can't now that well, now that you're talking about that he's writing things on brown paper bags i wonder if in the last 10 15 years has bob adopted some level of modernity and does he just carry around his iphone with him 
and just jots things down into his little, you know, recorder app. I um, mean, <laughs> I have no idea about that. And I also, I do not know. Um, I, I know that, that some major archives, when they purchase quote, the papers, unquote, of a writer or of, you know, of, of an author of any kind. I know that, that there are some purchases that do entail laptops, telephones, um, anything on which a writer would be creating a text, mm. uh, hard drives of your computer. You can't just turn them in for recycling. You have to send them over emails, things like that. Um, I have no idea if if that corpus, I mean, I don't know if Dylan writes that way. <laughs> I don't know if that's anything that has been or is being preserved. Um, or, if, you know, there are some things that just need to stay personal for oneself and one's closest uh, family and friends. Um, and I, I don't know what the determination is on that, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. It sure will when we're when we're talking about you know bootleg series volume eighty eight thirty thirty years from now or whatever. Long may they keep coming. <laughs> well, the last thing I want to ask you, and this is this might be just as difficult to answer, but you don't have to get into someone else's head. Would you put up to me onto Blood on the Tracks if you if if, if you could go back and uh, you could uh, snap your fingers uh, Avengers Endgame style and and change history? Would you put that song on the record? Oh gosh. Um <laughs> I I love that song. Yes. Would I put it onto the record? Honestly, I wouldn't spoil my absolute joy in hearing it for the first time years later. Okay. <laughs> so I would I would spare my little self that um having become so accustomed to Blood on the Tracks at that time, it certainly would fit, but I I can't think where I would have put it myself. Okay. All right. I I I like to ask people that because it's I, I think that song is so absurdly great. Isn't it's a, it? It's such a classic that I'm like, it belongs on the record. But then I say, yeah, but it, the record is the record. The record is perfect. It's 10 songs. It's perfectly balanced. Exactly. Uh, you know, do you want to put something on one side and make it, maybe it would topple over. Maybe maybe too much of a good thing well, is too much of a good thing. I don't know. Or what would you leave off? And right. Answer, nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not taking a song off. There's no way that's going to happen. So. Well, I I honestly, from my own point of view, I wouldn't spoil my absolute joy in hearing that for the first time after I was already a big fan of the record. <laughs> that's that's a very wise answer. I think that's a, that's a very good answer. So, well, I, th- I think that is going to do it. Uh, and this was a real real honor for me to for you to come on to talk about this. Uh, I just blood you know blood on the tracks i i spent a lot of time when i was in my 20s and i've mentioned this on other episodes where you know that that record not to be cliched but that record got me through difficult times and there was times where i was like i know he didn't write this for me because i was four when that record came out but damn if it doesn't feel like he wrote it for me and and uh in a career full of achievements uh, I I think Blood on the Tracks is the ultimate achievement. I really so far think, and maybe he's still got another one in him somewhere. But I really feel like this is Blood on the Tracks is sort of it. So, yeah. um, so I, I am I am as big a fan of the record as you are. I can assure you, and it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you about it today. Well, thank you so much. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I am, I have my website, which is just under my name, Anne Margaret Daniel, and. Uh, 
uh, when I'm not in the middle of grading final papers, which I now <laughs> am, um, I'm available also on Twitter and on Instagram. All right. And I said we'll have that link in the show notes. And I recommend everybody go out there and read what Anne has written about uh, these notebooks. It's it's just it's just it's amazing. It really is. It just it's you know we're lucky enough that we have the record. And then to have all this accompanying material to to help edify and and sort of even underscore what an achievement it is is it's just remarkable. So again, thank you so much for for coming on. Thanks everybody for listening. Of course, if you want to subscribe to the show, you can follow. You can sign up for it on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, or you can go to the website fireandwaterpodcast.com, and all the back episodes are there where you can leave a comment. I really appreciate that. And we're always talking uh, Bob over on Twitter, and uh, I'm at pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Just file it. Stick it away.